This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Sana Krasikov read her story Ways and Means from the August 27, 2018 issue of the magazine. Krasikov is the author of the story collection One More Year, for which she won the National Book Foundation's 535 Award, and the novel The Patriots, which was published in 2017. Now here's Sana Krasikov. Ways and Means The first time Hal read Oliver's apology was when it came down through the company's server to the inboxes of every employee at the public radio station where they both worked. She for a decade, and Ollie for three. His words were the usual ones, conveying sorrow at the thought of treading on anyone's sense of dignity or self-assurance the remorse toward his staff and others he may have injured through an excess of blindness. It torments me to know I've caused pain to people who held me in esteem. In recent days, I've come to recognize that my position in itself created a power dynamic that led many around me to feel silenced, invalidated, or reduced in spirit. The apology struck Hal as both defensive and pandering, suffering, as all acts of public contrition do, from a confusion over the intended audience. Also, it sounded nothing like the Oliver Riff she'd known, the Oliver who'd never use an idiotic word like invalidated. First, as a slightly too resonant voice she had tracked and mixed in the studio, then as a colleague and a confidant, and finally, for a period of eight months, as a lover. The second time she read the apology was the next day, when it was printed in the morning paper. Miraculously, Oliver's accuser remained unnamed in the press, though practically everyone at the station knew her to be a 26-year-old podcast producer named Molly St. Clair. Hal had met Molly when she was an intern two years earlier, assigned to The Riff as part of her rotation through each of the station's 16 regular shows. At that time, Hal had not expected to see much of Molly, except through the soundproof plastic that divided the tech center from the rest of the studio. Rarely did reporters or producers enter this grotto of oversized consoles and module racks without first catching the eye of a sound engineer and then being made to stand at the ragged strip of electrical tape marking the threshold before, at last, getting waved inside. Occasionally, Hal wondered if such nightclub-like patrolling by the engineers of their turf was a petulant reaction to the profession's declining relevance in a world where it was now possible to record, mix, edit, and even master broadcast-quality audio on a laptop. Still, the union had fought hard to preserve Hal's job category, and she was used to working her shift alone undisturbed. So it was discomfitting to discover Molly standing beside her one day, holding two paper cups. This one's black and that one's soy. They ran out of milk. Sorry. Molly scrunched up her face in cute regret. I don't bring beverages in here, Hal said. Could you take those outside? Right, the equipment. Sorry. When she returned, Molly pulled up a chair near Hal's, So this is where the magic happens. 
Hal scanned Molly's expression for sarcasm, but couldn't detect any in her green-flecked eyes and unplucked brows. Her face was round, pretty in the Midwestern way of the girls at the local college, though she was from California. She wore a short-sleeved floral print shirt that looked as though she'd outgrown it. Molly seemed both determined to listen to the riff from Hal's console and remarkably interested in Hal's job duties, apparently fascinated by her subtlest gestures, her fingers sliding down the pot on a guest who'd become animated and loud, patching in an ISDN line for a studio hookup. There were long stretches of time when Hal didn't do anything but monitor the board. So how are you liking your time here so far? She asked Molly to ease up on the intensity. It's been really fun. What have you enjoyed the most? Oh, all of it. Following the reporters, listening to the two ways. Honestly, it's all been super fun. It would not have occurred to Hal to use the word fun to describe her job or any job, however rewarding a word meant for things without consequence or the possibility of failure. When Hal got her start some 25 years earlier, there had been no internship programs, and even a staff job in radio was a low-rent setup. She'd got her foothold doing night work for a call-in show hosted by a Jesuit priest who, with surprising regularity, wound up talking his callers out of suicide. In those days... Local radio was still a refuge for people who violated the rules of polite conversation as a matter of principle. But over the past decade and a half, Hal had noted a change, a transformation whereby radio, and public radio particularly, had become an attractive career path, drawing ambitious people with family safety nets and almost psychopathically charming personalities. I like your summer do. Molly told her a few weeks later, on a hot day when Hal had arrived at work with a buzz cut. By now, Hal was well aware of Molly's admiration, both for her status as the network's only female sound engineer and for her anti-beauty uniform of boots and vintage aviator suits, which probably signaled to Molly that, like her, Hal identified in some non-heteronormative way. At 47, Hal was still as lean-muscled and narrow-hipped as she'd been as an art school dropout, trying to be taken seriously inside the grimy audio chambers of the radio world. Her coverall attire had the double virtue of making her comfortable, the extra crotch room was essential, and flattering her elongated limbs. Shortening her name from Haley Ann, which she'd always hated, had a similar advantage. And if her denim cyborg suits and gelled hair, which she dyed often, led some people to assume she was a lesbian. It was an impression she neither encouraged nor dispelled. Only Oliver, who at 65 was the oldest person at the station, assumed nothing of the sort about her, having lived long enough not to confuse style with identity. Two days before the penitential mass email, Oliver had been placed on indefinite leave. The latest rumor was that another allegation had surfaced. But this time, the seal of anonymity was so airtight, not even Hal could guess who'd lodged the complaint. She'd wanted to contact Oliver, but fought the urge to call or text, not wishing to add to the pylon, and also worrying that his correspondence was being monitored by his wife. Which probably accounted for the dual pangs of relief and guilt she felt when Oliver's number popped up on her phone 
while she was grocery shopping at the Saturday farmer's market. Hallie, what's doing? His voice sounded ordinary and slightly too controlled, as though he'd taken a long breath before dialing. And when she didn't answer right away, he said, alarmed to hear from the hunchback. Hal set the watercress she was holding back in its crate. What happened? Took you a while to find my number, Ollie? Since they'd ended things, he still occasionally called her, just to talk. But it had been some months since he had. I understand if you feel you shouldn't be speaking to me. You wouldn't be the first. I know how to hang up a phone. That a promise you won't? Hal considered what to say. Not unless you're about to tell me you're calling because you're on step eight. When she heard the hearty bark of his laugh, Hal felt the tension in her arms and shoulders release. He said he'd feel better if they spoke in person, and the following morning, Sunday, they met at a shoebox-sized cafe in Chinatown. Thirty years on the mic, and they escort me out like a shoplifter at Saks, Oliver said, a disposable tablecloth between them. He looked paler than usual, bleached out. He raked his longish hair back across his oval forehead, which tended several degrees northward without going into outright baldness. They sent H.R. Stephanie to hover while I packed up. I said, what do you think I'll do? Steal the pencil sharpener? She says, it's policy to keep people from taking or destroying evidence. Evidence? What of? They hadn't even told me what that girl claims I did to her. This surprised Hal. What about that apology? Eric's advice. Eric was Oliver's lawyer and racquetball partner. He said, get ahead of the story. Don't let a lack of contrition keep the beast going. The standard assy advice. But what did I know? I was thinking about the legacy, the show. Hal understood this to mean... He'd believed an apology would win him back his job. But aren't you legally entitled to an explanation, she said. It's an embuscade, my dear. Under the formal complaint process, specific accusations are not required to be disclosed. His voice took on the mincing drone he used for reciting headlines on the air, and only an accuser can raise the complaint to the formal level. Oliver put his palms out and grinned maniacally. Joseph K., you're looking at him, baby, and I should be grateful they told me it was Molly. With the other one, it's all strictly classified like the 9-11 memo. He looked at Hal with a sheepish expression, and in a stomach-churning instant, she knew why he'd taken her here, where no one knew them. Good grief, Oliver. If you thought it was me, why didn't you just come out with it? Oliver sat with his head lowered like a scolded boy. He glanced up at her but didn't speak, presumably waiting for her to confirm or deny. I'm a little speechless, she said, that you think that what we had was less than mutual. Of course I don't think that, Hallie. He gazed around the small restaurant, then trained his roomy eyes on her. Shit, I don't know what to think anymore. I can't trust my own memories. But I want you to know that if I ever did anything or said anything, Hal had to cut him off. You don't need to worry about me, Oliver. She meant it matter-of-factly, to reassure him that she wasn't among the aggrieved. 
but her tone had come out sounding touchy, sour. Oliver let himself sit up taller. So, we're good. We're fine. It was the second part of the apology that had irritated Hal the most. The provision about power and its alchemical ability to transmute base human behavior into the gold of institutional sexism. To construe a misdeed against one as a crime against half of humanity. It reminded her of St. Mary's, where she had gone to school until the eighth grade, when her dad had finally got out of paying child support by dropping dead. Made her recall the nuns and their chalk drawings of the great chain of being, that ladder of nature with God at the top, his angels below, then the Pope and the bishops and the mortal sinners and other bottom dwellers like actors, pirates, reptiles, and rocks. This primeval view of life as a hierarchy was what she'd fled by going to art school, where she was taught that true creators stood outside of society's assorted chains. People who thought for themselves approached life not hierarchically but territorially, like ospreys or rice farmers, tending to their unique terrain. It wasn't just her sense of self-reliance that the new paradigm offended. The line about a power dynamic only served to cheapen actual remorse, Hal thought, made the apology into a box trick with a trap door, the power caveat and escape hatch out of the basic decencies we owe one another. As if Oliver had such clout. Even if he was moderately famous, he was only part of the machinery of his own show. When they'd been involved, she'd never felt that the weight of his celebrity could alter a single fact about her life. The first time they'd used his complimentary tickets to see a play his wife had no interest in attending, then gone out for a beer, Hal had yakked for close to an hour about her life, telling Oliver things she normally kept to herself. For instance, that her mother had not informed her until she was 24, a full 16 years after her father walked out, that Hal was both adopted and half Puerto Rican. And when she'd asked her mother why she hadn't told her, her mother said that she didn't want Hal to think that her not being her father's natural daughter was why he had abandoned the family. After that, her mother said she'd just forgotten. Hal did not believe she was actively trying to entertain Oliver with these stories, to score another amused, approving laugh the way she'd heard his guests do out of some Pavlovian impulse. But when he asked her, And how do you feel about your mother's attempt to hold on to you in this way, to not have you drift off in search of something else the way your father had? She stared at him, stunned. The possibility that her mother's evasive looniness could have such a noble motive had never crossed her mind. And maybe any decent therapist, if she'd bothered with therapy, might have made the same connection, but spoken by Oliver in that James Taylory voice rested with a hint of the Bronx. The insight sounded both true and important. Later, when Hal considered why, after having no reaction to Oliver for years, she was suddenly susceptible to his charms, she thought it was because he'd been ready to find her interesting in a way her ex-husband had not. Andy was a fellow artist, an Englishman who thought American Thera speak was a drag one of those 
national habits which made Hal's countrymen such drippy company for the rest of the planet. You all build cathedrals to your feelings, he liked to say, castles in the fucking air. They'd approached their marriage in the same way that they approached their art, not as a quest for comfort or success, but as a passionate experiment. An experiment, as it happened, underwritten by her day job and union benefits. Technically, it was Hal's affair with a younger friend of Andy's that precipitated their divorce. But she believed the infidelity was mutual, that while Andy claimed to loathe the bollocks of curatorial rationales, he had proved adept at making meaning of his past and his demons in a way that gratified the art dealers and gallery owners who'd courted him. By the time their divorce was finalized, he was represented by Marion Goodman and had upcoming shows in London and Miami Beach. It had never much helped her, Hal knew, that she was attracted to men who were both taller than her and exceptional in some patently acknowledgeable way. Ollie's celebrated talent as a world-class listener suddenly seemed like a minor miracle. Hal had adjusted the sound levels on his interviews countless times, listening to him ferry his guests from one self-revelation to another. But when he trained the beam of his attention on her that night, she understood for the first time what people meant when they confessed to her their secret wish to be interviewed by Oliver Riff. When Oliver got up to wait in line at the restrooms, Hal kept an eye on his tall, rangy figure. For a man of his years, he'd kept the weight off. He had the posture of a green bean, which made it possible to see the continuity with his younger self, the lanky, wild-eyed troubadour. Later, when she would encounter the nearness of that body in her bed, its tea-like smells and papyrus skin, and find its embrace no less pleasant than that of the tattooed Englishman whose emulsion nudes of her still hung on her walls. Hal would wonder, ironically and then not, whether a fling with a sexually meticulous man in his sixties could indeed be the kind of passionate experiment she was after. Can I see your paintings? Oliver had asked when they were on the street outside the bar, just blocks from where she told him her studio was. His sleepy-lidded eyes were crinkled in a grin. No, she said. He looked surprised. No? No. Ollie shrugged, and their talk moved on to other topics. When she recalled that moment later, she marveled at how simple it was to draw the line with him, make her limits known. Maybe she was already sensing the direction things were moving and knew she'd need something to hold on to for herself once it was over. The second time Oliver called her, three days after their Chinatown breakfast, Hal was in bed watching The Crown on her computer. It was one of the free screeners she got in return for her union dues of $800 a year. 9.28 p.m. was not exactly late, but late enough to ask if it was, which Oliver didn't. I finally extracted it from them, Hal. Got it in writing. Would you hazard a guess at what raggedy Anne claims I did to her? She pressed pause on a scene of a dissolute Philip bent over a letter. I had the audacity to fondle her ring. Not her hair. 
not her knee, her fucking jewelry. Oliver, where are you? At home, Deborah's at the lake house. It was a copy of something I thought I'd seen at the Smithsonian, a Bauhaus design. I asked if I could get a closer look. Hal knew the ring, he meant. A cobalt-tinged chunker with a faux pearl set in the center, held there by no visible prongs or bezels, like an iridescent clitoris. This was when? At lunch, which, for the record, was Charlie's idea. He'd come back from some executive retreat where they tell you young people today are meaning-driven. They want a mentor, not just a boss. Make yourself available. Charlie was their new CEO, who had orchestrated an expensive employee buyout, so as to avoid the bad press of layoffs at a public station. Hal doubted it had taken much arm-twisting to make Oliver share a meal with a young staffer. Unquestionably, something was being left out, that something likely being Oliver's intention. He'd tested the water. He'd failed. She couldn't get it off, so she laid her hand in front of me on the table. But my eyes said, you know I'm blind. I picked it up. Her hand, you mean? To look at the ring. And she seemed fine with that? All smiles. Chatted on about the flea market where she found it. But they're all seething, these kids. They smile and they seethe. They decide later it's a problem. She told Charlie and Petra I was breathing too hard on it, and... Now it's being referred to as the hand-groping incident. Hal heard herself laugh in shock. The crime sounded like one a first-grader's teacher might talk about in careful tones at a parent conference. Go ahead and check the demographics of France in 1787, Oliver resumed, encouraged. No worse than ours. The king must die so the country can live. He sounded almost triumphant in his despair. They can't impeach that Nazi in the White House, so... What are you saying, that you're paying for Adolf Twiddler's sins? I'm saying, as a general rule, when we pay, it isn't for our sins. I asked my youngest, Michael. He's the only one speaking to me at the moment. I said, what are you all so angry about? He tells me, listen to this, the hypocrisy of your generation. Hypocrisy! That's our great crime! My poor father would have had a day. He used to say, hypocrisy is the tribute, vice pays to virtue. But these people, they feel they're owed something. They can't understand how this world can be such a stinking rotten place and still insist on turning. They can't fathom why we don't all just die of our moral disease, kill ourselves, and leave it all for them to make unsullied again. Through her headphones... Hal had heard his voice go into the unseemly high registers only a handful of times. She felt no satisfaction at Ollie's unraveling state, but there was something transfixing about hearing the fine instrument of that voice quiver like a broken spring. And who could say if his delirious reasoning completely missed the mark? Who knew what calculations tipped resentment into revolution? A month earlier, before Molly had come forward with her grievance, Hal had been soaping her empty lunch containers in the newsroom kitchenette when she'd been spotted by Petra, the new VP of programming. Hal, right? Hal froze mid-soap. Petra was a recent hire from CNN, a rare sight beyond the executive's floor. That's so smart, Petra said, smiling at the food savers. 
I wish I could pack my lunches more often. After I'm done packing up the kids, there's like nothing left. I end up wasting so much money. I just like it homemade, Hal said, so Petra wouldn't think it was a matter of indigence. Totally, absolutely. But hey, Petra said as if the thought had just come to her. Why don't you let me take you out to lunch? Company tab, obviously. When? Hal said, confused. Tomorrow? They ate at a French patisserie, eight blocks from the office. Not a long walk necessarily, but longer than most of the staff would permit themselves to take for lunch. Across the wobbly pink table, Hal sat listening to Petra speak at a coffee-inflected pitch about the board's plans for capital improvements, building relationships with donors, new content that sought greater engagement, things that bore no relation, in other words, to Hal's own work. Lots of interesting things coming down the pipe, Petra enthused. Down the pike. What? It's actually down the pike? Hal knew she sounded like a pedant even before she closed her mouth. It's a Britishism, pike, as in a large road. I did not know that, Petra said. Having worked for a year in public radio, Petra was presumably used to this kind of nerddom. But Hal couldn't help feeling that if Oliver were the one sitting across the table, he'd be genuinely amused, being a fun fact hoarder himself. That's why I like these one-on-ones, Petra said, leaning in. I want to know what we could be doing better. Now that Hal sensed the conversation was not about budgets or layoffs, she felt comfortable saying, It'd be nice to get two more U87s. I've made the request twice. Petra jotted this down in her moleskin. We can look into that, but are there other ways you feel you haven't been heard by the previous management? I haven't had a raise in a while. Petra blinked but didn't look dismayed. We're actually doing a gender disparity review of salaries right now. I brought it up with Gal last year and he said we were in the red from the employee buyout. I can't speak for Gal, but I would certainly support your asking again. I did notice, though, Petra moved a piece of goat cheese with her fork, that two years ago you actually switched to working the weekly shows with fewer hours, so that's a slightly lower pay grade. I stated my old salary. May I ask why the switch, though? Was there anything at your previous job at The Riff that affected your desire to keep working there? Hal could feel the color rising all the way up to her forehead. As far as she knew, nobody had any suspicions about her and Oliver. I worked there for eight years, she said. I felt like making a change. Petra took this in. We all need a change from time to time. She put away her pad. When I came on board here, I made a commitment to supporting other women. But I've learned it's one of those things that go both ways. Hal stared at her. Are you asking other people this, or just me? I can't really answer that, Petra said in a happy, knowing way, as if she'd been anticipating the question. But I wouldn't be doing my job if I wasn't making sure people felt safe and supported at work. She put her company credit card in the bill holder, a painted papier-mâché box. Over the next four weeks, and up to the moment when she read Oliver's apology, Hal had revisited the conversation in her head, each time wondering 
whether Petra had been offering her free career advice or, and this seemed more plausible now, some kind of trade. Contrary to what most listeners believed, the riff did not air precisely live. There was a lag time, a window of 55 minutes, during which a limited number of things from the taped segments could be fixed. The bleeping out of a curse word or an ethnically suspicious slur, jipia, the truncation of a Tourette's-like string of you-knows, which sometimes overcame the nervous, editing out Oliver's condolences to the author of a memoir about a road trip with his Parkinson's-addled father once he was informed that the father was still quite alive. His repeated references to slaves and slave culture, while speaking with a historian who very obviously kept rephrasing his questions so as to refer to enslaved people. It was up to the young producers to keep Oliver from making these errors to begin with, to write out all the proper references and pronunciations on the elaborate rundown sheet that Oliver would sight-read, like the jazz pianist he'd been in his youth, sometimes only minutes before a guest appeared in the studio. Hal admired this about him, his genius for improvisation, an ear and a mind that could pick up the tail of a phrase and swing with it almost randomly until suddenly you understood that what he was doing was uncovering some buried shape, the inner logic of a life or a career, before retreating and letting the guest, like a soloist, reveal himself. It had been a pleasure, for a while, to lend her talents in some way to his. But then, about two months after their affair had ended, Hal discovered she no longer had the heart for the job. Tate, the engineer who replaced her, had his own approach, and Hal did not think it was her place to instruct him, for instance, in how to shave off a half a second before a follow-up to make Oliver seem quicker on the uptake, how to reduce the gurgle of awkward laughter when the accuracy of his knowledge was challenged. In the two years since she'd left the show, Oliver's age was showing more on the air. And though she recognized her own guilt about it as a form of vanity, Hal could not help but connect the beginning of Oliver's downfall with her own defection. When he called again, Hal was in her art studio cleaning her brushes. On humid summer evenings, while it was still light, she could see the weather out of her tall windows at its proper Midwestern scale. Watch a storm cell converge and hang above the city, its pale vapors settling into an anvil cloud. She rubbed the soapy ends of the brushes on her palm, ignoring the phone's canine persistence. But several hours later on the rainy street, she managed to convince herself that answering was more endurable than going through Oliver's voicemails. She'd never heard him weep before and wondered if he was doing so now as he went on about how lucky he'd been to have enjoyed the career he'd had a great career, an exceptional career. For a nervous second, Hal thought he might break into Sinatra. Then he asked if Hal had ever told anyone about the two of them. In the downpour, her voice sounded strange to her as she shouted into the phone, I'm not the sloppy one, Oliver. Ducking under an awning, she asked if he had forgotten forking a tomato right off her plate when the staff had gone out for dinner. She'd been mortified. Did he really think anyone would be impressed? if she flapped her gums about their relationship? Maybe, she said, if he'd been more discreet, 
Petra wouldn't have come around quizzing her about why she'd left the riff. Oliver kept quiet. After she was through, his voice was cool when he said, When did you say she took you to lunch? Hal hesitated. I don't remember. I think you do. It might have been the day you had that landmine documentarian on, she said. In the ensuing silence, she could hear him doing the mental math. So, before Molly. I have to go, Oliver. Wait, not yet. Listen, when the transmitters were down after the flood, it took them five months to fix that second one. Has she heard him right? Had he finally cracked? What are we talking about here? The storms we had five years ago. Don't tell me you forgot all about this. You mean the FM transmitter? The one that was wrecked really bad? Like hell it was. Management did everything they could to make sure the work order on it went as slowly as possible. We could only transmit on the one frequency, if you recall. Told the listeners the reason we had to cut their beloved classical music program was to get all the news shows on the air. Fulfill our duty to inform. Great for the pledge drives, too. We need your help more than ever at this pressing time. I'm fairly sure the riff was more popular than classical, Ollie. You know how sensitive some people get when we try to take away their debussy? They write in threatening to cancel their subscriptions. Like anyone needs their 12 bucks a month when three other shows would love the slots and have mortgage lender sponsors queuing up for the breaks. But the optics. We got a public mandate. Can't just yank a beloved show off the air. Oliver, I'm agreeing to listen to you, but not if you keep insisting that you had nothing to do with what happened. He didn't seem to hear her. They've been after me since before the buyout. Ought to have heard Charlie, that turd. Oliver, this isn't something we want to do. It's something we have to. And all along, they've been fishing. Petra, that Iago, going around with her hook and bait. Or maybe just doing due diligence. Come on. You don't really believe that. It's stitch work. Intelligence gathering. They come to you weeks before that little chippy comes up with her story of how I despoiled her virginal hand. Might as well use the current while it's going for you, eh? You'll never know what the whole truth is, Hal said. Oh, sure. But I know how this game is played. And so do you. Or you wouldn't have told me. Hal had wanted to put an end to the conversation. But she'd also meant what she said. That no one could know the full truth. For Molly, who had probably never encountered anything but support and encouragement from her parents and professors, some part of the truth was that she really believed a well-known and very busy older person had nothing better to do than assist her on her path to achievement. And the truth for Oliver was that a protege like Molly might be impressed enough with his stature and intellect to tolerate, if not welcome, his warm breath on her hands. But besides these more obvious truths, weren't there others? Another truth, for instance, was that since Oliver's last five-year contract had been renewed, there had been pitches for four new shows, three of them podcasts. No one knew for certain how much Oliver earned, but given his 30-year tenure and frequent citing by donors as a major reason for contributions, his salary was believed to fall between two hundred seventy dollars and $350,000. 
budget enough to staff at least one new program, if not two, with change left over for musical scoring. Thanks to the network's operating deficits and historic tight-fistedness, only one of the four proposed shows had been approved, a whizzy economics explainer titled Ways and Means, which had already logged half a million downloads, most of them among the 18 to 45s. Ways and Means was, coincidentally, the podcast where Molly St. Clair, after a stint in the newsroom, had recently been promoted to full-time producer. An analogous truth was that, despite Oliver's durable popularity among longtime listeners who still sent in checks and received umbrellas, his numbers were slipping. Whether out of loyalty or technophobic inertia, the 50 to 65s and overs could still be counted on as a captive audience inside their vehicles, while the 18 to 45s refused to be prisoners of locality and preferred to have their cultural sustenance delivered to their phones by someone as endearingly neurotic as they believed themselves to be, someone such as, say, Mark Marin. What had made her sympathize with Oliver was the same thing Hal knew that made her out of sync with anyone who had been encouraged to see the world in terms of ever-increasing degrees of power, instead of lessening degrees of freedom. Oliver's tragedy, she thought, was that he did not know he had lost his freedom long ago, that if a man could look at his paycheck and then gaze out through the studio glass at those working under him and still believe he was permitted to partake of their jokes, their gripes, and shared cockatry, then something was seriously not connecting. When Hal got back to her apartment, she opened the computer and checked the network schedules. It was true. Even after the second transmitter had been restored, the classical programming had never fully returned to the air. What's more, the threatened apocalypse of canceled subscriptions had not materialized. Likewise, the listener comments from Oliver's first days off the air were filled with the predictable clamoring. Oliver was referred to, across multiple threads, as a national treasure. A reckless decision. The station had shot itself in the foot and deserved to bleed. But as the weeks without Oliver wore on, some of the commentators had to admit that Sharul, the entertainment reporter who'd been filling in, was doing a pretty great job. And if she lacked Oliver's depth of knowledge, she made up for it with a fresh bantering style and an inquisitiveness that was wonder-filled instead of all-knowing. I spoke to Eric, Oliver said, when he called back that evening. He, he says if we draw up a statement that says you were approached, it could put the reasons for the termination into question. Have you lost your mind? Others might speak up too. People at the station respect you. Oliver, 70% of that station doesn't know my name. I could lose my job. Your union, they wouldn't dare fire you. You've had a flawless record for ten years. Hal, if you won't say anything, who will? You aren't going back on the air, Ollie, she almost shouted. It's not going to happen, okay? You don't think I know that. I'm not counting on anything turning around for me. But this is bigger than me. What sort of world are we living in if it's become easier to burn down a man's life than to tell him, sorry, your time is up? She could feel his voice rattle in her chest cavity, like it had the first time she'd heard it, like something heavy 
and bronze, sounding the clear note of her own feelings. All right. All right. I'll give you a statement. Hal, thank you. You're doing the honest thing. I have a condition. Sure. Anything. I want to see Molly's statement. You said you had it. He paused. I'll have to talk to Eric. Just have it ready, all right? I'm putting my livelihood on the line for this. Of course. She hadn't seen much of Molly since her internship on The Riff, but she'd run into her two weeks back when they'd walked out of different elevators into the lobby at the same time. Molly looked thinner, her curly hair pulled back tightly in a bandana, and the planes of her face shiny with early summer sweat. They chatted about the podcast's new season. Molly had been staying past midnight every night, putting the episodes together. In baggy pants and a man's button down, she looked frumpier than necessary, Hal thought, though maybe she'd always looked like this and Hal hadn't been paying attention. So how are you doing otherwise? Hal finally said, trying to appear concerned, but not too. Honestly, I'm just trying to move on, Molly said. That Molly could still confide in her so easily was almost constitutionally painful to Hal. She said she'd gone off Twitter, too toxic. And Instagram, off of everything, ever since journalists had started calling her up, asking if she was that Molly. An editor at a prestigious magazine had proposed that she write a cover story on the movement, if it included her coming out as Riff's accuser. It's like some kind of bidding war for your virginity, Molly complained. Hal was taken aback by her seeming willingness to discuss the expediency of her victimhood. That must be hard, Hal said, unsure if her tone was of deep sympathy or deep irony. Molly acknowledged that it was hard. And I know there are people who would like own it, who think it's a cop-out that I'm not using my name, but... The part they don't get is that that's exactly what I didn't want to do in the first place. I didn't want to talk to him about my personal life, my private life, and he just kept bringing it up. I don't see why this should be some kind of price of entry, you know, to get anyone to take an interest. Hal felt it only fair to return or forestall Molly's honesty with her own. I think you should know Oliver was a friend of mine, is a friend. I'm sure he would have appreciated hearing your point of view if you'd actually, like, told him. Molly blinked at her, possibly recalibrating everything she knew about Hal. What was I supposed to do? Say, please stop talking about your marital issues with me, Oliver? Please stop asking me who I go out with? Maybe the problem, Hal said, was your own politeness. I was trying to be professional. This place is so self-congratulatory and polite, it's like a fucking coral reef. Molly's voice was starting to sound shaky and clotted. You can't brush up against a single thing without feeling like the whole structure is going to fall apart. Tell me again why that's my problem. The office of Oliver's lawyer was not in a glass-walled high-rise as she expected, but in a six-story walk-up above an Italian furniture store. The lawyer, Eric, might have been Oliver's age but seemed younger, in a merino sweater with a zippered neck, while Oliver had come in an actual suit and tie. Good to see you, Hal, Oliver said, standing up and sitting again. Eric gave her a firm handshake and said, We're glad you could come, with the amicable solemnity of a funeral director. She gave him a nod and a look that said clearly enough, 
Let's get this over with. Eric gave her a copy of the document she'd be signing. I've already read this, she said after a glance. She'd had Oliver email it to her, made the necessary changes, which Eric obviously knew. I'd like to read the other report now. There were four pages, though most of what constituted the actual accusation was buried deep in legalistic ass-covering. A special committee of the network board had retained a third party to conduct an independent investigation to determine what management may or may not have known about other allegations of this kind. She read on. Allegations did not rise to the level of infractions, but were flags that were raised about questionable conduct. Mr. Riff invited the female staffer to lunch to discuss her career and future with the network. The staff member stated that only half the conversation was devoted to professional topics and the remainder was spent discussing personal information. The staff member stated that Mr. Riff repeatedly asked questions about her life outside work. The employee later said she was not comfortable with this line of conversation. Mr. Riff made occasional comments of a sexual nature. For instance, after the staff member complained that her boyfriend frequently made plans to meet with her, only to cancel at the last minute because he was still playing poker with his buddies, a habit she worried was sliding into addiction. Mr. Riff remarked that he couldn't fathom why someone would choose playing poker over going to bed with the staff member. An unnecessary remark, Hal conceded, but also, she thought, not inconsistent with Oliver's sense of humor. It's not your job to lift anyone's self-esteem, she would have said to him if he'd confided to her. Mr. Riff overshared at dinner and held the employee's gaze for an extended period. God help us all if overshare was now a word with enough legitimacy to be entered into a legal document, she thought. Mr. Riff had expensed various dinners for which business purpose appeared questionable. This, Hal knew, was the network's way of sharpening its knives. Everything he'd ever charged would now be called into doubt. Mr. Riff repeatedly invited the staff member to plays and art openings for which the station received complimentary tickets. The staff member declined these invitations. Mr. Riff showed the staff member a silver bracelet he'd bought on a trip to Peru and asked her to try it on for him. Hal felt her pulse speeding as she read. She did not remember seeing Molly wearing this bracelet, and in any case would probably not have noticed. But she did remember the vacation referred to. Oliver's trip to Peru with his wife just before Deborah started chemo. The trip was a respite before the treatments, and a chance for Ollie and Deborah to give their marriage another run. Hal and Oliver had decided to end things then, maturely. He'd sailed off and returned three weeks later, bearing a gift, a fine pair of turquoise-encrusted leather sandals for Hal, her walking shoes. The staff member said she could not accept the gift of the bracelet, but Mr. Riff insisted she take it. Hal let her eyes skid along the surface of the words while she struggled to keep the question from showing on her face. Had Oliver picked up Molly's bracelet at the same shop where he'd got her sandals? Several days later, the staff member tried to pay Mr. Riff back for the gift, but he laughed and said it wasn't worth troubling herself over. How easily she could picture Oliver abasing himself before this girl by talking about that little out-of-the-way shop, how he'd known the owner for 30 years since his days as a foreign correspondent, 
In his mind, the gift would be his way of letting Molly know how hip to the world he still was, how connected, despite his years, how enduringly cool. The staff member said she felt vulnerable in these interactions because she lacked career experience or journalistic work to lean back on. Hal took a long breath. Her eyes were having trouble focusing on the individual sentences. It was hard in the rowdy cascade of her thoughts to put a finger on what had been so weird about the statement on first reading. Not the accusations themselves, which Hal agreed did not rise to the level. But now, staring at the arrangement of paragraphs on the white of the page, she could see what was missing. Where are the dates? She said, looking up. What appeared separate incidents in the report had in fact been laid out as a timeline. The dates must have all been on the left, a column that could be redacted without drawing notice. She saw Eric exchange glances with Oliver. Why had she assumed that his lunches with Molly had started after she and Ollie were through? Not, for instance, while Molly was still an intern. Her intern. She had no right to her tawdry curiosity or to her righteousness. This she knew. Hallie, it wasn't like that. She heard him say faintly from his end of the table. Hubris, the nuns had taught her, was the gateway through which all the other sins entered the soul. It wasn't like you and me. She agreed with him about this. It wasn't your sins you paid for. All sins spoke only with the voice of their mother, pride. Hal was surprised now to find how much of her upbringing had stayed with her all along. A man of his vanity, who could spend the night with her and feel he had satisfied her. How could it not make him believe he was entitled to more? She put the pen down. Hallie, just a second now. She knew what it would seem to him, a scorned woman's retribution. It pained her that she cared what he thought at all but she could not be the one to underwrite this vanity. She heard him speak her name again, but his voice was small and far off now, as though she'd already started taking off her headphones. That was Sana Krasikov reading her story, Ways and Means. She's been publishing fiction in the magazine since 2005. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps, available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Kate Walbert reads Pet Milk by Stuart Dybeck. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. Our theme music is by Jordan Batiste and Ross Michaels of North American Plastics. The Writer's Voice is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>